Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read, uh, Jonah chapter 4, and continue our look at this uh, short biblical book. As most of us no doubt know, Jonah has been through a very interesting time, uh, to put it mildly. He has, um, as we know, he was uh, told by God to go to Nineveh and warn them about impending uh, judgment and instantaneously he decided to do the exact opposite. And instead of heading east, he decided to go west. And he went off to Tarshish, which as far as the ancient world was concerned was the edge of the world. Tarshish is modern day Spain. And they didn't really know what was out beyond what we, what we call the Atlantic. And um, so Jonah basically resolved to go as far away from doing God's will as possible. And we know what happened to him, that um, he caught in a storm, and uh, the remedy for the boat that was caused, caught there in the storm, the sailors, despite all their best efforts to keep the ship afloat, the remedy was to throw Jonah overboard, which happened to him, and he didn't really expect anything to happen apart from drowning. But there a uh, uh, fish swallowed him, and in the fish he had a very profound religious experience and then found himself uh, back on land and he was called again by God to go to Nineveh and this time he went and as he went through the city a journey that would normally have taken three days but on day one the city started to repent and here's Jonah after all these um, interesting experiences about to have his time of daily devotion. And I wonder what um, we would expect him to say. After all the intriguing things he's been through, what's he going to say to God as a result? And I suspect none of us would expect him to react the way he did. But then he did react the way he did. And it's recorded in God's word for us. Um, and therefore we have to look at it and see what God is saying to us. It's not merely what God said. Because God's word is, is a living word. And God has spoken through this passage ever since it was composed. And one obvious reason for it being there is not that Jonah is abnormal. I think it's there because what Jonah went through is kind of a frequent reaction that people have. Not, not in exactly the same um, ways that it occurred to Jonah. I mean, God doesn't expect any of us, I'm, I'm sure, to uh, be swallowed by a fish and then have everybody know about it. But the experiences that Jonah had, well, there's features of them that are common. And so are his reactions. And one reaction, of course, is to pray. And here we have a prayer of a prophet. 
or prayer of a prophet that God has used in quite remarkable ways. Um, as we know, Second Kings refers to Jonah and tells us when he was a prophet. And he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. And although not much is said about Jeroboam II in the Bible, enough is said to tell us he was one of the most powerful of the kings of Israel. And uh, the land that he restored uh, to Israel uh, was the largest they ever had. So, so Jonah um, lived in a time when, although the nation was split in two, Israel and Judah, yet the geographical extent of Israel was even probably bigger than during the time of Solomon. So it was a, an interesting time to be a prophet. And we'll come back to all that as we go through the, our sermon. I want us to uh, consider uh, three things, really. Uh, Jonah's prayer. What can we say about his prayer? And then there's, that's in verses 1 to 4, and then there's God's provision. What, uh, what, what response did God give to his prayer? Because uh, one assumes that the response is in, into, to his prayer. What response did God give to his prayer? That's in verses 5 to 8, his provision. And then in verses 9 to 11, um, God argues on behalf of himself that he should show pity. Doesn't he? In verses 9 to 11. Um, I mean, God is under accusation by his prophet and God as it were speaks in his own defense and gives reasons as to why he should be a God of pity so we'll think of that and then make some applications so Jonah's prayer well, every person prays according to who they are and what life is like at any given time. So as we look at Jonah's prayer, um, what ideas come to mind? Well, I'll tell you what came to my mind. He prayed according to his personality. He prayed out of presumption. He prayed out of patriotism. He prayed out of the place he had as a prophet. And he prayed because he deeply disagreed with what God was doing. I mean, that's quite an extraordinary prayer, isn't it? A man who prayed according to his personality and his character straits come out in this uh, chapter. And he prayed because he had made presumptions that were not fulfilled. And he prayed because he was a patriot. And he didn't think the God of Israel was helping his own cause. And he prayed because his place as a prophet could be at stake. And he prayed, despite having knowledge of who God was, he prayed against that. And that's quite startling. Because how far can somebody go in their prayers? I just want us to think about these things briefly. He prayed according to his personality. What kind of person was Jonah? Well, it's fairly obvious from this chapter that he was an angry man. 
several times, as pointed out, he was angry. And indeed, he, he himself says he justifies his anger. He says, um, I'm so angry that I'm ready to die. He's volatile, isn't he? Jumps to conclusions. Acts on the immediate. Takes no time to consider. Impulsive. And yet he prays. But his prayer is fully in line with his character. Certainly can't say about Jonah that he's a hypocrite. Because he doesn't hide anything. He just lets it all out. And he's not talking to his neighbor in whispers. He's shouting at God. So in a rather unusual way, he's sort of honest. But it's honesty about a wrong attitude that he's got. Our personality affects our prayers, whether we realize it or not. And here was Jonah, full of self-justification. Points out in verse 2, says to God, This is not what I said when I was, before I was sent initially. I just thought this is all wrong, God. Your suggestions, your instructions, well, I know better. So he's angry. And remember, he's just had an extraordinary experience that nobody else has ever had. Who else in human history has had an entire city repent immediately at his message? But there we are. He doesn't pray according to the blessing that he's seen. He's prayed according to his personality. And I'd venture to say that we all do. So that's one feature of his prayer. The second one is presumption. I mean, Jonah had gone to Nineveh with high hopes because the, the second uh, message that he was um, given was, from a human point of view, harder than the first one. Uh, the, the first one uh, was given in chapter 1 and verse 2, and he's just called there to go and tell Nineveh that God is aware of their sinful behavior. He tells them that in chapter 2 of verse 1. And that's just a fairly general thing, isn't it? It's like coming to Inverness and saying, God knows all about your sins. And I suppose there's a certain sense in which we do that everywhere the gospel is preached. That's a normal sort of thing. But when he, went, when he was sent the second time, his, his message is much more stark. And it says there in chapter 3 and verse 4 that what he said was, In 40, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, that's a lot starker than his previous message. And. I suspect Jonah went there kind of happy. Happy with the message. They've got a month to go. And because he didn't want Nineveh to be any blessing from God. And here's God now telling them with this um, brief summary of the message. Go and tell them that in 40 days time you're going to be destroyed. And 
I see no reason why Jonah wouldn't have taken that to heart. And he would have presumed, wouldn't he, that judgment is coming and that the, the, the city of Nineveh will soon be no more. All its population in some way or other would have been um, punished. And we can sort of tell from later on in the chapter that since the punishment is also going to involve the animals, that is some kind of real catastrophe that's going to occur. So the, he's made this presumption. But what he presumed didn't happen, did it? He wanders into Nineveh, goes up to street number one, tells the residents, in a month's time, your city is going to be destroyed. And they start repenting. On day one. And he goes to street number two, tells them in a month's time, your city is going to be destroyed. And the city starts repenting. That street. In fact, things go so badly for him that the king hears about the message before Jonah gets to the palace. And before Jonah has a chance to inform the king that he's going to rule for another six weeks, the king starts repenting and issues a decree that the other two-thirds of the city should also repent. So Jonah's presumption of certain judgment doesn't happen. And in his prayer, he reflects that. He had presumed that God was going to come in justice and give the city what they deserved. And when God didn't do that, it affected Jonah's prayer. He didn't like, he didn't like that God had not carried out his threatening. We all make presumptions. Life is full of presumptions. And our presumptions affect our prayers. In fact, I think it's just obvious. We pray according to our presumptions. And then the third feature of his prayer was patriotism. He's proud of his country, isn't he? Israel, there, he mentions it in verse 2. When I was yet in my country. It's not his country at all. He doesn't own it. But he's a patriot. And of course, his ministry up until now has been all about the extension of Israel. They, as I mentioned at the start, their geographical boundaries had, had um, recovered what they had lost to the surrounding nations. Israel was on the move, climbing the ladder amongst the nations of the time. There was only one threat to them. And that threat was Nineveh. Because Assyria was also on the rise. Now, if you were a patriot in Israel, what would you like to happen to Assyria? Rivals for global authority. Well, we know what Jonah wanted. He wanted Nineveh to be no more, just to disappear. And as a, as a really enthusiastic Israelite, 
that would be something they would want. Of course, the only problem was that Israel in its development and its growth was not worshipping God. The reign of Jeroboam II was not a godly period. So the Israel was making progress despite its lack of faith in God. And from that point of view, it was no worthy of anything than Nineveh was. But Jonah didn't see it that way. In his view of things, pagan Israel was more important than pagan Nineveh. But was that God's perception? But anyway, Jonah's patriotism, he knew about the predictions by other prophets that in the future, it didn't actually say when it would happen, but we know when it happened, that a hundred years after Jonah, Nineveh came and destroyed Israel. And Jonah was aware of these predictions. And from a logical point of view, as a certain sense, it would be, it would make more sense, wouldn't it? If God was to prevent the fulfillment of these prophecies in the future. And one way to do it would be to get rid of Nineveh. Then he was patriotic. His geographical attachments affected his prayer life. And I think that can happen to us as well, can't it? And then there's his place as a prophet. As I've mentioned earlier, no other prophet had his message, did they? All the other prophets had the opposite message. Nineveh is a threat. Nineveh is going to be a tool of God's judgment. Nineveh is going to come and do terrible things. And they did do that. But imagine, I don't know if they ever had them, but imagine if they had a gathering of the prophets. And they were saying to each other, what did you announce last week? What did God tell you to say? So up they come and all of them are saying, well, part of my message is that sadly, at some stage in the future, Nineveh is going to be a real problem. What's your message, Jonah? Well, bizarrely, I've got the exact opposite from what you've got. I have to go to Nineveh, and I had a message of judgment for them, but unexpectedly, the whole city repented. And are you happy about that, Jonah? Are you happy at having a different message from the rest of us? God has said to Jonah, basically, What's going to happen in the future has got no relevance to the present. Nineveh will be a tool in the future. But for all we know, within the century between Jonah's ministry and the fulfillment of these predictions by the other prophets, there could have been regime change in Nineveh. I mean, we've no idea. All we do know is that at that particular moment in Jonah's life, God wanted to show mercy to the current residents of Nineveh. And whatever was going to be said about them in the future had no relevance to the present. 
But for Jonah, it would be difficult, wouldn't it? Just to be different. And sometimes we have a problem with having to be different. And the reluctance to be different can affect our prayers. They certainly affected Jonah's prayer. He thought it would be far better for God to just get rid of Nineveh. Which, of course, would <laughs> then raise questions about God's predictions, wouldn't it? And then there's his profound disagreement with God's revealed character. This um, statement he says there, if I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Well, the bit about God being a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that goes way back to the beginning of Israel's history. When Moses prayed to God there at Mount Sinai and he said to him, show me your glory. And God said, okay, yes, I'll show it to you. And he put him in the cleft of the rock and God came by in some kind of theophany, took on a human form, and he came by and said something. And what he said to Moses is what Jonah is quoting here. I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I mean, that verse tells us who God is. He's a covenant God of Israel. And as long as Israel adheres to God, they've got nothing to worry about. But they weren't adhering to God, were they? But rather bizarrely, the prophet who was serving God wasn't adhering to God either. Instead of praying according to the attributes of God, he prayed according to his own attributes. And that's a rather strange way to do things, isn't it? He didn't like what we would regard, surely, as beautiful features of God. God's mercy and his slowness to anger. I mean, Jonah's the exact opposite of God, isn't he? He's swift to be angry, but God is slow of anger. Jonah's got no mercy in his heart. God is full of mercy. And Jonah, God's prophet, who predicted things accurately regarding the development of Israel, here he is praying according to his own attributes. His prayer reveals nothing about God, but reveals plenty about himself. And I wonder, do we pray according to our own attributes? What we like and don't like. Each of us has got to make up our own minds about that one. But it is a sobering question. In fact, Jonah, he's so annoyed that he tells God it would be better for him watching, so better for him as he's aware of a city repenting 
it would be better for him to die. So that's a odd situation, isn't it? But it is a reminder to us that we need to be very careful in our prayers because they might say more about ourselves than we actually realize. Because Jonah's prayer certainly tells us a lot. How does God react? How does the almighty sovereign of the universe respond to this? Well, he does. Let's ask him a question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? It's a question that just gets straight to the heart of the matter. Do you do well? And of course, it's not the only time that God is going to ask that question. But anyway, that's his prayer. Then there's God's provision. The God of providence. The God who's always active. The God who reacts. The God who responds to Jonah's prayer, though Jonah himself thinks he's doing it all himself. Jonah goes out of the city, as we can see there, and made a booth for himself because of the heat of the sun. But just think of this. He's the only man in Nineveh who knows who God is. And he decides to take himself out of Nineveh. There's all these, there's 120,000 children, there's probably a million people, at least. <laughs> and there's a million people repenting of their sins and no one to guide them. And there's Jonah, who as we can see, since he quoted that verse from Moses, there's Jonah who knows a lot about God. And he chooses to head off to a viewpoint and just see things. In other words, he's become a, a spectator rather than a participator. I wonder, do we do that? Could that describe our lives? Our contribution to the growth of God's kingdom. Are we spectators or participators? I mean, Jonah, who had previously been a participator, now becomes a spectator. But thankfully for Jonah, God doesn't leave him where he is. Now, earlier we had seen that if God wants to deal with Jonah, he can send a big storm or he can send a big creature, whatever the fish was. He can send a big storm or he can send a big creature. But the same God, dealing with the same person, can also send a small thing and a small creature. So instead of the storm, we have a plant. And instead of the fish, we have a worm. And God can do miracles with plants, can't he? And this plant appears overnight just grows up exactly right beside where Jonah happens to be with his makeshift um, protection. 
I have no idea if, Moses, if Jonah knew Psalm 121. The moon by night, he shall not smite, nor yet the sun by day. But if he had known it, he could have sung it initially, couldn't he? I mean, God there provides something to prevent him from sunstroke and from whatever effects the bright moon could have on him. And we're told that Jonah was quite glad about this plant. So I'm sure we'd all be in the heat of the Middle East. But it doesn't say he was thankful to God. I mean, imagine just sitting there with your makeshift, whatever he had managed to put together, and all of a sudden, rising over his head comes this plant and just grows big enough to protect him. And Jonah, well, just seems to take it for granted. This is kind of normal, isn't it? A regular happening. Go out and sit in the sun. That pops a plant. I mean, his common sense must have said to him, God must have provided this. But there's nothing in his heart about that, is there? The fact that God has shown mercy to him doesn't create in Jonah's heart a longing for mercy to others. And the fact that God has shown mercy to him despite his rebellious prayer does not bring about repentance in Jonah's heart. He's just there, still angry. Because as a reminder to us, the miracles in themselves don't bring about repentance. I mean, the Bible is full of that. I mean, 10,000 or so people took part in the feeding of the 5,000 men because their wives and children are there. I mean, they saw a miracle. They, they participated in the miracle. But as far as we know, there's not one convert from them. So uh, miracles in themselves don't bring about repentance. And even miracles shown to God's people don't bring about repentance by themselves. And here's Jonah, and he is, he's looking down on a city in which everyone is repenting. But Jonah is looking at them and not repenting. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? But there we are. And then the worm comes. A little worm. And God can send a worm. And is he showing to Jonah I that God says, I decide when to send mercy and I decide when not to send mercy? It's not up to you, Jonah. And God's provision. And it is intriguing, isn't it? How often God uses little worms just to show to us perhaps in our when we're thinking too much of ourselves he just sends a little worm and that just brings everything down then there's God's pity 
there in verses 9 to 11. God asks them again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. For the umpteenth time he's actually said, it's better for me to die than to serve you. I mean, that's what he's saying to God, isn't it? And of course, God takes issue with him and says to him, you, you, are, you regret not having the protection of my mercy when the plant is taken away. And you don't want to have mercy on the city of Nineveh. which is far more valuable than a plant. I mean, in it, God points out to him, there's 120,000 children who don't know their right or their left. And there's also animals, cattle. And these children and these animals They've done nothing to prevent God showing mercy. And God just says, if it's right for you to get a little plant to help you for a few hours, surely it must be right, says God, for me to show permanent mercy to an entire city who needs it. Our God is full of pity for his creatures. And I think in verse um, 11, we've got an insight into what God thinks about our world, about what we're doing with the helpless children and of course others and even with animals because that's what God says as we close just a few responses because it's a very strange conclusion isn't it what is it I mean, Jonah, we hear no more about him. Anyway, what can we learn from this? Well, one is God always has a last word, doesn't he? He's got the last word here. He's basically saying to Jonah, your little grasp of things has made you misread the entire situation. You might think you know a lot, but in reality, you don't really know very much. God knows everything about Nineveh. He knows about their terrible sinfulness. And Jonah knew that as well. And he knows about their their future behavior. And Jonah knew that as well. But God also knew their current situation. Their 120,000 children. And their animals. And is God not saying to Jonah, live in the world you're in? He has the last word. Is he not saying to us, live in the world you're in? We can escape into the past. Or we might wander into an unknown future 
That hasn't happened yet. But God says to us, doesn't he? Live in the world you're in. Look around you. He says it to me. He says it to you. Who needs mercy? So God has the last word. Maybe Jonah stunned into silence. The man who's got an answer for everything now suddenly doesn't have an answer. He's got an answer for the sailors on the boat. Throw me into the sea and all will be fine. He's got answers for God when God asks him any question. But he's got no answers when God describes what he says in verse 11. Maybe he stand into silence. Hopefully he was. And of course, there's, there are verses in the Old Testament that says, be silent before God. If God brings on us a certain amount of awe, that's good. The third lesson we can get from this is how absurd to disagree with God. But Jonah's not the only person that did that, is he? I mean, Peter does it all the time in the Gospels. I mean, he thinks he knows better than Jesus. So we shouldn't be too surprised that Jonah in the Old Testament's got the same kind of outlook. Thinks better, knows better than God. But you know, God says to us to do certain things. And who are we to disagree with him? Either by our words or by our actions. It's folly to disagree with God. But jo and Jonah, well, in Jonah we see a man determined to disobey. How do we, how do we become determined to disobey? Well, by, by starting to disobey. And once we head down that trajectory, we just become determined to disobey. And it becomes easy to disobey. It becomes the norm, as Jonah did here. Another lesson we get from this, of course, is we have to be careful when something good happens because we may not know why it's happening. It was a wonderfully good experience for an impenitent prophet to get a plant over his head. But was it a good experience? had this um, good thing from God which he didn't deserve and which he didn't use correctly and therefore he lost it. And sometimes the good God sends to us good things to bring us to repentance because that's what Paul says. God's goodness leads to repentance. But when he takes, if we don't repent, he can take away the good thing he sent. <coughs> Jonah says that to us, doesn't he? 
that something good happens to us when we're being disobedient. We are not ever to assume it's a sign that God approves. The plant indicated God was merciful, but it did not indicate that God approved of Jonah. And they went away. And the last thing to remember is, remember God is full of pity, full of mercy. And his heart, at any moment, can embrace an entire city and bring them to repentance, no matter what their past has been, or no matter what three generations down the line might do, God can embrace an entire city. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for this unusual book. A book full of unusual events. But the most unusual thing in it is Jonah himself. Lord, help us to learn from the details that are there of how one of your most used servants revealed he was still a sinner. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are merciful and you sent Jesus to deal with our sins. So help us, Lord, to be merciful even as our Father in heaven is merciful. Do that, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen.